Luke chapter 16, we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke, and we're picking up at verse 1 in chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1. He, that being Jesus, also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we, as we look at your word this morning, that your spirit would illumine our minds, that you would turn on the lights, that you would help us to see what it is your son is saying that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to our church, to us, that we would be changed by your word, that you would help us, Father, to be those who love to invest in eternity and not here, who long for being in our true home and who are storing up treasures for ourselves there. Pray that you would do that great work in us, for we so tightly cling to this world. And we need you to loosen our grip and cause us to grasp onto you and our treasure with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage we're looking at today is, is a passage that um, is a parable, really, that is often avoided. It's a parable you may not be familiar with. If you're not someone who frequently reads through Scripture, this may be a parable that you've never heard of. If you're someone who's never read the Bible, clearly you've probably never heard of this. This isn't a parable that's preached much. It's not a parable that's talked about much. In fact, if you go and read scholarly works on this parable, it is one in which scholars have much debate about. We also don't talk about it a lot because it punches us right in the mouth with regard to our view of money. And we don't like to think about money. I don't know if you guys are aware that the Bible addresses the topic of money and our poor use of it far more than it addresses the topic of, for example, sex or sexual immorality. Why is that? 
Why is it the Bible spends so much time talking about money and our poor use of it, specifically greed? Perhaps, in part, the answer is because greed is less obvious a sin to us than sexual morality is. I mean, think about it. We, we hear, um, oftentimes, we will be counseling people, and, and there's a situation in which adultery has occurred. And one of the things that we often hear when we're counseling them through adultery is, is the fact that one of the members, the, the one who committed adultery, after committing adultery the first time, oftentimes comes home and showers and scrubs themselves as thoroughly as they can. There's this compulsion to get clean because they feel unclean. They recognize a sinfulness or a shamefulness about what they've done. Now, obviously, if you continue in that, you will eventually harden your heart or sear your conscience to the point where you don't notice it so much. But initially, there's this sense of uncleanness with it. And it's because we notice with sexual morality, there's something that just stands out to us as that is wrong. We just kind of innately know it. Now, we can sear our conscience about it, but we tend to know it. I'll give you another example. If a woman comes in and finds her husband looking at pornography, she will be repulsed. She'll be sickened by it. But if she finds out her husband spent five bucks on something that was a waste, they didn't really need, she might get a little irritated, but we aren't going to be in a counseling session over it. It's because... We recognize that sexual morality is a huge problem, but we don't tend to recognize that greed is. It's a less obvious sin. People don't come home from spending too much at the store and take a shower because they feel dirty. Do they? They might feel a tinge of guilt like I went overboard. But that's about it. Yet greed is, in the Bible, called idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. Greed is destructive sin, and what's amazing is that it reveals a lot about what really matters to us. You see, how you spend your money tells you a lot about what matters to you, doesn't it? It tells you a lot about what's important to you. So let's look at this parable about money and see what Jesus is driving at with regard to money. Look at verse 1. He also said to the disciples, now I want to stop there and, and remind you the context. Jesus in chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, begins by addressing um, these crowds. There's been huge crowds in chapter 14, we've learned. And coming into chapter 15, these crowds essentially are broken into a few groups tax collectors and sinners, these disciples who are drawing near to hear, and then the Pharisees and scribes who don't want to hear from him. And he addresses these two groups with the parables that you read in Luke 15. And then when he comes into Luke 16, he turns to his disciples, to the disciples, and he wants to address them specifically. Now we don't know if this happened next temporally, or if this is placed here by Luke to continue to make an overall point, but there, is, there are some connections between this passage and the one that comes before it, which is the passage of um, the prodigal God, really, the, the father who had two sons. And so I'll demonstrate some of those as we go through. 
He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. Now, in this culture, so you know, it wasn't unusual for a rich person to have somebody who managed his household, a steward. Usually that person was a slave who was born and raised up for that purpose. They were a slave who worked in the household who helped with the finances, and they would raise to the point of um, authority in the house to where they oversaw all of the rich man's stuff, all of his possessions, all of his wealth, and they had quite a bit of latitude with how they worked with that man's wealth. And so there was a rich man who had a manager or a steward, and charges were brought to him that this man, his manager, was wasting his possessions. And that idea of wasting his possessions is the word squandering. It's the same word used of the younger son in the parable that's just preceded. If we remember, the younger son took his father's inheritance, or his, his inheritance from his father, and he went out and he squandered it in reckless living. And the idea is being brought up here again that there's this manager who's taking this rich man's money and possessions and he's squandering them on reckless living, on himself, on what he wants. He isn't managing it faithfully. That's what he's doing. Verse 2, and he, that being the rich man, called him, that being the manager, and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your manager or management, for you can no longer be manager. In other words, turn in the books. I want to see the books. Turn in the books because you're done. You are no longer going to be managing my stuff. You've been squandering it. This was mine, and you started squandering it. So turn it in. Turn in the books. You're done. Turn in your keys. Clean out your desk. You're fired. Verse 3, and the manager said to himself, just like the young man, remember he came to his senses, the younger son came to his senses, he said to himself, I should go to my father's house. The servants there are taken care of better than I am right now. They have plenty to eat. Well, this manager comes to himself, he says, oh no, <laughs> I have no job. Now, if I'm a slave who's just ripped off my owner and he fires me, how easy is it going to be for me to get work? Not very easy. And the guy understands that he's probably not going to be given a white-collar job again where he manages somebody's finances. And he starts to realize that, and he says this, What shall I do since my manager is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I'm not the kind of guy who could do manual labor anymore. And I am too ashamed to beg. See, I only have two options. I either go out and start digging, or I start begging. And I can't do either one of those things. And the manager said to him, excuse me, he goes on, verse 4, I have decided what to do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And there's sort of a, an excitement here in his decision. It's almost like he's high-fiving himself in the air. I know what I'll do. I'll make sure I'm taken care of. Here's how. Verse 5, so summoning his master's debtors one by one, in other words, the people that, that, were, um, that owed money to the master, he summons them in. There are several people that owe money to his master. He, sum, he, he summons them in. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. 
So you know, that's about 100, it takes, to get 100 measures of oil, it's about 875 gallons of oil. Olive oil takes about 150 olive trees to produce that. It's the equivalent of about three years' salary. That's how much I owe, I owe your master. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. In other words, give us half. Now, if you're the recipient of having your debt cut in half, you're a pretty happy person, right? You mean I can only have to pay half? Yes, you only have to pay half. Now, the master is owed 100, but you only have to pay half. That's awesome. What's this guy immediately doing? He's making friends, isn't he? He's finding other people who have resources, and he's making sure he has friends so that when he no longer has a job with his master, what can he do? He can find someone to take him in. He can find a way to be provided for. Then he said, verse 7, he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. Now, the equivalent there is far more actually than the oil. This is about eight to ten years of salary. This is several acres of wheat. I owe a hundred measures, excuse me, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. In other words, he discounts at 20%. Now the master comes in, verse 8. Then the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And we think to ourselves, what is going on here? This is where scholars start getting twisted. If you came back after your manager had squandered your property and found out that your manager wised up and watched out for his own backside by saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bring in all the debtors that owe you money and I'm going to cut their debts in, by 50%, by 20%, and I'm going to ingratiate myself to them so that they'll take care of me when this is all said and done, and you come back as the owner and you find out that this manager's done this, you're probably going to be upset with him, right? But that isn't what happens. The master commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He says, that was really wise, that was shrewd. You covered yourself. When you leave here, you are guaranteed you're going to get a job because one of those guys is going to bring you into their house because they owe you big. That was shrewd. I'm commending you for that. And the scholars start getting all twisted up. Is Jesus commending theft? Are you saying it's a good thing to be so self-centered that you look after yourself? Well, let me tell you a couple things that we have to work out. One, no, Jesus is not commending theft. But what I want you to understand is what Jesus is commending and what the master is commending is this guy's shrewdness to think long-term. See, up until now, this guy's been thinking on a short-term basis. I'm just going to squander it, I'm going to squander it, I'm going to squander it. I don't think long-term. And now this guy's saying, you know what? I better start thinking long-term. And the scholars don't know, did this guy rip off the master or not? In other words, what it was the right of, is it was the right of a manager to charge a usury tax or, or some kind of an interest rate. Is the manager going in and cutting out his own interest rate? That may be what's happening. He may be cutting his own interest rate, realizing that that isn't a good plan to charge them interest because I need to be taken care of them long term, by them long term. So I'll cut that out. I'll lose some money myself and be taken care of. That may be what's happening. 
It may be just that the guy's dishonest, and that's why in verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And it may be that what the master's saying is, man, you are really sly. You figured out a way to cover yourself. Not that the master's commending his theft, which is potentially happening here, but just well played. Well played. You will not have work. We don't really know. We know at the end of the day that all the master's commending is that this guy thought shrewdly about his long-term benefit. That's what he's commending. The master of the house is saying, you thought shrewdly about your long-term benefit. You're to be commended for that. Now there's a, there's a lesson that then comes with the parable. So the parable ends there with the master commending the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. But then it goes on and Jesus makes a point out of it. He says, there's a reason why I'm telling you this. Look what he says in the second part of verse 8. For the sons of this world, unbelievers, people whose lives are caught up in the here and now, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Believers, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. In other words, unbelievers are more shrewd about their long-term benefit than are believers. Believers aren't very shrewd about it. And what's he driving at? He's comparing the way a businessman in the unbelieving world would think about his long-term investments with the way believers often don't think about their long-term investments. And by long-term there, he means the truly long-term sense, eternal investments. See, unbelievers at least are thinking long-term if they're shrewd. And a lot of them are. And you meet lots of them. They're quite good with their finances. They're saving up. They're putting things away in retirement. They're investing in relationships with people that benefit them in the long term. And they're making sure that they are taken care of. And they're very shrewd in that. And Jesus is basically coming back and saying, but you believers, disciples, you aren't thinking at all about your long-term good, which is eternity. You're not thinking about that. You're not very shrewd about it. You're not pressing in very hard to how do you invest in eternity. You're pressing in hard into how do I take care of myself now. Jesus is driving at the idea that shrewd people in this life are good at thinking about long-term benefit. They take care of themselves. They invest in the long haul. Like this wise manager who got savvy about taking care of himself in the long term. Sadly, however, God's people often don't think long term in the truest sense of the word. Sure, some of us believers may think long term with our money about our finances as far as long term, i.e. my retirement, what I'm going to do when I'm 65. But do we think long term, i.e. what's eternity going to be like? How am I investing in that? We don't often think about it. We're focused on this short life, this vapor, and not on heaven. So unbelievers show that they are more shrewd than believers in the way they steward their stuff. They think long-term. They think about the only long-term they really have. And we don't. See, to reverse a popular saying, we are so earthly-minded, we are of no heavenly good. 
We don't place our, our treasure there, we place it here. Jesus, in fact, commands us in Matthew 6, he says, verse 19, do not lay up treasures for yourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where, where thieves do not break in and steal. See, you need to be like the wise manager, like the shrewd manager who's investing in his long-term benefit, which believers, you understand, that's heaven. That's eternity. You need to invest in that, not in this. This stuff all goes away. It's eventually gone. It's eventually burned up. You need to invest in that life. How much do you think about the stock market versus how much you think about heaven? See, how much do you think about your job and your paycheck and your savings account versus how much you invest in eternity? How does it show up in your lives? If I looked at your calendar or your checkbook or any other part of the way you invest your emotional energy or your thought life, how much of it's focused on here where moth and rust destroy and how much of it's focused on heaven where moth and rust do not destroy? See, because you can say, oh, heaven's important to me. It's like saying that, that my wife is really important to me, but I don't think about her or spend any time with her. Jesus is important to me, but I put all my time into other things. I put all my money into other things. And it's difficult, isn't it? If we, if we want to be honest about it, our, our hearts are so turned in on now, aren't they? We grip onto this life. We don't long for heaven, our true home. You guys long for it? Do you long to be with the Lord? Do you say, man, I hope Jesus returns sooner? Do you kind of say, well, I hope he returns after a few things I'd really like to do? I hope God takes me home now. You see, Paul says it's better to be with the Lord than to be in the body, right? But he says, he goes on to say that, that you know what, I'm gonna continue on. I wanna be with him. The only reason I'm gonna continue on in this life is for your benefit. Is that your attitude? Do you think to yourself, I'd rather be with the Lord, but I, I will continue in this life as long as the Lord has me continue this life for the benefit of others so that the gospel is made known. So I account my life as of no value to myself, just that I may finish the race, that I may testify to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Is that where your heart is? I have to be honest with you, I struggle with that myself. And Jesus says quite a bit to us about it. He goes on and says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice, he doesn't say where your heart is, that's where you're gonna invest. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where are you putting your treasure? Because where you put it, that's where your heart will be. It'll follow. When you put your treasure into your marriage or your children, that's where your heart will be. I can love Jesus, but if he takes my kids from me, 
See, because I put my treasure there and my heart's there. I can love Jesus, but if he takes my money from me, it's because your treasure's there, so your heart's there. I want to look at two major implications that continue to come out in the text with regard to that. Here's the first one. We need to shrewdly steward all God has given us to gain friends. You hear this? Shrewdly steward all that God has given us to gain friends and treasure in heaven. Friends and treasure in heaven. That's a strange statement, I know, but I want to look at that. Look at verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, that is a strange statement, isn't it? It's not the way we're used to thinking about um, heaven. It's not the way we're used to thinking about eternity. It's not the way we're used to thinking about our money. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. What is he talking about? He's talking about, when he uses the word unrighteous wealth, he's talking about mammon or worldly wealth. Now, the word unrighteous is attached to it not because money in itself is bad, because money is not in itself bad. If you want to say money's neutral, it can be used well or it can be used poorly. The reason that it's spoken of in a sort of negative light here is because of what happens to our hearts with regard to it. What's bad is our hearts. Not money itself. But he's calling it unrighteous wealth or worldly wealth because our hearts are so attached to it. It's like the law. The law is good and just and holy. But in other places, the law is spoken of as in some ways seeming unhelpful because it just condemns us. The problem isn't that the law is a problem. It's that when the law comes, it shows our hearts. We don't know what it is to covet until we're told not to covet. You know what it's like. Don't touch that fire alarm. Oh, i got to touch it now, right? Shows me something about my heart. That's what money does. It reveals something about us possessions, whatever the Lord has given us a steward. And he's saying, you know what you need to do with your unrighteous wealth, with your worldly wealth, with what you have? You know what you do do with it? You need to make friends for yourselves. And not the kind of friends that you make now in this life where you walk around and buy people off. That's not what he's talking about. So that you make friends for yourself so that, here's the purpose, when it fails, what fails? This life When it fails, they may receive you, they being your friends, into the eternal dwellings. What does Jesus mean here? He doesn't mean that your friends will save you or that if you go out and spend your money on your friends, that's going to save you. Jesus is clear all over Scripture that he's the one who saves you. His name means he's the Savior. He's the one who saves you. What he's talking about is the idea that when you use your money your possessions for the sake of others and they are led to Christ as a result of that, your life is given so that others come to Christ, you're making friends who when you stand in heaven will receive you in. They'll be there to greet you. 
See, when you give money to your local church and then your local church is meeting with someone and Jason's sitting in a counseling office with somebody whose life is falling apart and he starts talking to them about the gospel and they come to Christ and you invested in that financially by making sure he was paid to do that work, they come to Christ, they may not know that your money had anything to do with the fact that he was supported, but when, they, when you arrive in heaven and if they're there, they will know and they'll greet you and thank you. When you give to a ministry like Radius International, whom we support, which many of you support, and we train up somebody who goes to an unreached people group at Radius, and they go there, and they make Jesus known to people who've never heard of him. Those people, we have people in the BM tribe, I'll give that example, who are believers now, because Brandon Buser went there with his wife and his team. They had never heard of Jesus before, And many of you contributed financially by contributing to the church, which supports them. And now there are believers in a people group in the part of the world that you'll never meet until you die and you're received into heaven and they're there greeting you and thanking you. That's what he's talking about. It's the way you help your church or missionaries or your neighbor. It's the way you give your life for other people. It's the the lady or the man who says, I'm going to serve in the toddler area. And that week, some toddler comes in there whose mom has shown up to church for the first time and she's a wreck because all week long has just been so overwhelming. And she sits in the church service and hears the word and the Lord works in her heart and changes her and brings her out of that ditch And one day she says to you when you arrive at heaven, thank you for taking care of my toddler so I could hear the word. I needed it. You see, it's when your neighbor is going through a difficult time or your coworker is going through a difficult time and you say, and they're they're not believers, and you say, how can I pray for you? You start praying for them and later on they think, man, you know what? I need God. I need the Lord, and they start looking for a church, and they show up at a church, whether it's yours or another, and they hear about Jesus, and they're saved. And your prayers helped carry them in, and they're thanking God for you, and they're receiving you. It's the way your life is given for other people. That's what he's talking about. It's the way it's given for other people. That's what he's getting after. This life will end, and you will enter eternity. Will there be friends there to receive you? Verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. You see, when you're faithful in very little things, you'll be faithful in much. Oh, I would give more to help with missions if I had more. Here's the question. Do you give with the little that you have? Because if you don't, I don't care how much more you have, you're not going to give more. If you're faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. And if you're dishonest in a very little, you will be dishonest in much. It's the way it is. I wouldn't cut corners at work this way if they just paid me better. And then they start paying you better 
and you become dishonest with a little more money than you were before. You see, because all that stuff does is what you do with little things demonstrates what your heart's really about, doesn't it? Ladies, if you're single, you want to know how to look for a husband, or men, if you're single, you want to know how to look for a woman, start looking for those who are faithful in very little. Are they faithful in little things? When they make small commitments, do they keep them or do they brush them off because they have better things to do so they blow off their small commitments? If you see them blowing off their small commitments again and again and again, you know what they're going to do with the big ones. So you can't know what they're going to do with the big ones before you marry them, can you? Generally, you don't. Maybe you, you are fortunate, this sounds bad, maybe you're fortunate enough to be dating someone who goes through a major tragedy when you're dating them so you can see how faithful they are in the big things. But likely not, but I have to tell you, once you get married, major tragedy will come one day in your life. How they dealt with the little things will demonstrate to you how they're going to be faithful in the big ones. Same thing we think about leaders when we raise up leaders of the church. We're looking around at men. Men make commitments, and women make commitments to serve, and we're looking around at how do those men and women follow up with their commitments? Their small commitments. Do they bail on them? Are they consistent? Because if they're faithful in those little commitments, then we'll start entrusting more and more to them. If they're not, then we're not going to. You're faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. Verse 11, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? Why am I going to give you treasure in heaven, Jesus is saying, if you're not even faithful with what I've given you here? This is short term. This doesn't last, and you can't be faithful with it. You think I'm going to give you the long-term stuff? And if you've not been faithful in that which is in others, in other words, if you're not stewarding what God has given you well, who will give you that which is your own? Why am I going to give you your own? See, we've been called from the beginning to steward God's world well, haven't we? This all belongs to him. God owns everything. He doesn't just own 10% of your money. And in America, I think American evangelicals, and they said it's about 2.5%. During the Great Depression, the average family, Christian family gave over 10%. But now uh, they say in one of the most prosperous times in our history of our nation, we give a um, little over 2% on average, charitably. Great Depression, over 10%. Prosperous times, just over 2 He who's faithful in little will be faithful in much, and he who's Dishonest and little will be dishonest and much. Shows a lot about our hearts, doesn't it? God doesn't own just 10% of your money. He owns 100%. He doesn't own just 2%. He owns it all. He owns everything you have. Everything is his. Everything. All your possessions, your family, your time, it's all his. Every bit of it. He doesn't owe one day of your week. He owns all seven. He doesn't own your children after they're 18. He owns them from the moment they're conceived. They're his. He owns it all. And we are to recognize that our lives are lives as stewards or managers of what is God's. Are we squandering his stuff? Or are we investing it in other people so that Jesus might be known? Those are the only two options. You're squandering it by spending it on yourself or you're investing it, your time, your money, your talent, in others 
so that Jesus would be known. We're stewards of his, of his stuff. How does it look financially? How do I make financial decisions? When I get a raise, do I think to myself, how can I give more to others? Or do I think to myself, how can I spend more on me? When I make a financial decision, do I even consider the implications to the kingdom of God with regard to that? Do I think to myself, man, you know what? I could buy this car or this car. If I buy this car, it's cooler, but this car will save me this much money. I could, I could help my neighbor who's in need. Their calendar. How do I look at my time? What does my time in prayer look like or in the word? What, is, what, what are the things I do have time for? What, 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 are they, what am I investing that time? Because you know what? I, I run into people all the time. I don't have time for this. I don't have time for that. You, you have time for everything you want to do. And you're demonstrating what you want to do based on how you use your time. It's just as much a reflection of your heart as where you spend your money. My family. What's my priority in training my kids? Is it their success or their godliness? See, I, I struggle with this. My, my, my kids are entering their teenage years now. My son is, is, uh, loves sports. He loves to do well in school. He's neurotic about, he's perfectionist. It's a problem. You all know what that's like if you have a perfectionistic child. But he, he struggles with that, right? He's, he loves to do well. And I'm always, he's, he wants to do more, and I love seeing him do more. And the more he does, the more I realize that time is getting sucked up. And I'm asking the question, am I equally putting energy into making sure he's growing up in the Lord? See, I don't care if he goes to college as much as I care about whether or not he knows Jesus. If he goes to college and he's a rock star and he's amazingly successful and he has a great wife and children and he is, you know, well balanced in life and all of that garbage and he doesn't know Jesus, what difference does any of that make? He's going to hell. Am I going to sit there and say, man, what a great job I did as a parent. What a great life we had as a family. We spent so much time on vacations, and we spent so much money on our kids' things, and we invested so much time in making sure they did this and that and this and that so that they're well-balanced, well-adjusted, successful adults who are going to hell. What difference does any of it make? So how do I spend my time and prioritize with my children? What about my talent? Do I see those abilities given to me by God to steward well for, for his sake, or am I absorbed in using it for myself, to please myself? See, everything we have is his, and we are to see it as such. I was thinking about this with regard to myself this week because Every time I study a passage before I preach it to you, I gotta repent myself, right? <laughs> Spend a lot of time in repentance. And one of the things I thought about early, early this week, in fact, last Sunday as I was working through this, is how do I spend my time? See, I spend lots of time on things I never think about whether or not that's a good investment in what God wants me to do with the time he's given me. It's his time. How do I spend it? And one of the things I thought about is, you know what? I probably spend 30 minutes a day on Facebook on a good day. 30 minutes. 
Is that a good use of my time? That's 30 minutes I could pray, 30 minutes I could read my Bible, 30 minutes I could talk to real human beings rather than virtual ones. 30 minutes I could give to my wife or kids. Would my wife turn down 30 more minutes of me listening to her? Would the Lord turn down 30 more minutes of me in prayer? So I gave it up. I cut it off. I got rid of it. Because it's God's time and I realized it wasn't a good use of his time. Is the way I use my free time focused on stewarding God's time? You see, we need to realize that everything we have is his and steward it for him. Which means our first consideration is how do we help others and further the name of Jesus with what we have? And it shows up in our faithfulness with little things. How faithful are you being with the small things God has given you? I met a couple who's in here and... and, uh, as you hear this, I'm not gonna give their names, they'll know who they are, um, but I'm not trying to puff them up, so you'll have to repent if you feel too prideful afterwards. But, but let me tell you something I learned that challenged me oh, a little over a year ago, I suppose, about a year and a half ago, I was contacted by this couple who was moving to California from a, from a pretty far distance. They were moving here to, to help out with family. And they were looking for a place to live in California based on a good church they wanted to find. And so they found our church. Said, well, we're gonna move to where somewhere we don't really wanna live for the sake of helping out our family, for the sake of others. And when we go there, we're gonna pick a location near our family where there's a church that we can invest our time in. And they took time to listen to sermons. They took time to meet with me. They even took time to ask me, I remember getting an email saying, what part of the city should we live in? I didn't even know how to answer the question because I'd never heard it before. What do you mean what part of the city should we live in? Not where's the nice place to live, but what part of the city should we live in for the sake of being able to serve the church the best? Nobody's ever asked me that question. Where should I move in town so I can serve my brothers and sisters in Christ well? And I was personally challenged by the question because I'd never even considered it. Never been asked it. So they uprooted their whole lives for the sake of helping their family, and they thought about how they steward this as an opportunity to also find a local church and care well for the people in that community, in that church, and the surrounding community. That's what it looks like to be faithful in small things. That's how it looks to be wise stewards looking forward to eternity. How much do your decisions demonstrate a concern for others as you, as you look to store up treasures for yourselves in heaven? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is the way you spend whatever treasures you currently have showing a heart focused on being eternally with the Lord? When you hold up your life and the way you spend your time and your money and your energy and you look in that mirror, do you see someone who's focused on building their treasure eternally? 1 Timothy chapter 6, this is discussed by Paul as he instructs the rich people. He tell, Paul tells Timothy how to instruct the rich people in this world. And verse 17, he says, as for the rich in this present age, which by the way, that is now us. We are all rich, and by this world standard, certainly by the standard of this text, that's us. 
None of us are generally trying to wonder if we're going to eat this day today. Okay? They prayed, give us this day our daily bread with a real fervor, with the hope they might eat that day. That God would provide because they may not eat every day. We're sitting at a meal going, I don't know if this is very good. Or we're at a restaurant trying to make a decision on a menu going, which one should I choose? Should I choose this one or this one? If I choose this one, I might be disappointed that I didn't get this one. You're going to eat again in a few hours. But we're rich, so we have first world problems, right? As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Yes, you're able to enjoy what God's provided you with. For sure, enjoy it. But don't set your hope on it. Put your hope on him. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, here's the question. Are you storing up treasure for yourself for a good foundation for the future in eternity? That's what you're to do. Enjoy what God's given you. Don't hope in it. Share, be generous with others, storing up treasure for yourself for a good foundation in the future. That's what a wise steward does. You may be thinking, I failed at this. I've never been the kind of friend to others who thinks about using what I have for their well-being above my own. I have been so focused on my time and talent and treasure giving me happiness here that my heart seldom is focused on investing in eternity. I feel pretty condemned right now. That's why it's such good news that Jesus was the friend who gave up his riches and became poor and laid down his life for his friends so that we could be rich in him. See, because Jesus did what we failed to. He stewarded his life and all that God gave him incredibly well. He walked away from all the riches of God in heaven for the sake of his friends, to save us and to make us rich in him. That's why we trust in him. That's why we look to him. That's why he's our hope. And as our hope, the one who's brought us forgiveness and life and all the riches of God in him, as that person, we also want to be like him. We want to follow his example. So we need, to stru- we need to shrewdly steward our hearts because we're natural idolaters. Understand that? You don't just steward what's out there. You've got to steward your own heart shrewdly, wisely, because we are natural idolaters. Jesus says it this way, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for he either, either will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, said it this way, our hearts are curvatus in se. That means they are curved in on themselves. See, we're natural idolaters. We can't serve God and money, and so we tend to serve money. Because our hearts are curved in on themselves. 
Or as Calvin said, our hearts are like idol-making factories. We're just cranking out new things to worship in place of God all the time. The Apostle Paul says it this way, we've exchanged the worship of the creator for the worship of the creature. And if we hope to shrewdly steward our hearts, we have to repent. We have to repent of our worship of the creation, particularly ourselves, and look to Jesus. Look to him in faith. If you're not a believer... If you're not a believer, you need to understand that you are storing up wrath for yourself. God has richly provided you with all sorts of good things. He's been kind to you, and that kindness was meant to lead you to repentance. And if you don't repent and look to him and be saved, then you are storing up something for yourselves in eternity. It's called wrath. You're treasuring it up for yourselves. You need to repent and look to Jesus and be saved. If you are a believer, you need to understand that regeneration or being born again, being a new creature, does not end our drift toward worshiping the, creator, the creature. It doesn't. It certainly helps break the slavery we have to it, but it doesn't end our drift toward wanting to worship this life. And we must place our time and money and effort into heaven. We must develop a longing for being with Christ eternally. And how people spend their resources tells you what they value. And we dare not invest our lives into other things and hope that this desire one day will just develop in us magically for eternity. It won't. As long as you set your mind on the things that are on earth, you will never develop a longing for your true home. It's not just going to come along one day and smack you upside the head. It's a longing you have to develop. The Holy Spirit's at work in you to will and to do God's good pleasure, so any work you put into developing it is ultimately his work, but his sovereignty does not remove your responsibility to press in. We must actively begin to steward our hearts by what we invest in, by repentance, by, as Paul says in Colossians 3, and I'll read this here and end with this, as Paul says in Colossians 3, when he's talking about godliness and the lack thereof of the people and their attempt to practice asceticism, which is severity to the body, in order to get godliness, he says, you don't understand where godliness really comes from. Godliness doesn't come from all these kind of, from asceticism or severity of the body. It doesn't come from that. Where it comes from is this. If then, chapter 3 of Colossians, verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, if you have been made new in him, if you have been resurrected spiritually with him because you've been given a new life through faith in Christ, if that's true, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. You're actively seeking them. You want that. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. You're actively setting your mind there, not here. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's our hope. The blessed hope of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, coming again. That's where our minds are supposed to be set. That's what we're supposed to be seeking after. 
You have to begin to let go of the stuff of this world and start investing it in that if you ever hope for your heart to follow to some degree because your heart tends to follow the treasure. So you start making the decisions now. I'm going to take this and give this to this person to help them. I'm going to take this time and give this time in prayer. I'm going to take this time and give this to my wife and kids. I'm going to do this. I'm going to start releasing all this stuff. And as I do, my, because I want to see them with the Lord, as I do, my heart will follow. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'll start to develop a longing for it. So you want to develop a longing for your home? That's what Jesus says. Start developing a longing for your true home. Start shrewdly stewarding your life for your new home. You want to develop that? Then you've got to let go and start giving this stuff to the Lord, to others. You've got to start working at it, setting your minds on Christ. It isn't going to happen automatically. Something you trust the Lord to work in you on and something he will and something you take steps to work at. That's what shrewd stewards do with their lives. They invest them in eternity. That's what Jesus is commending us to his disciples. May we be faithful. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would cause us to be, that you would work in us so that we would be disciples who are shrewd, who steward what you have provided us well, who set our minds on the things that are above Seek those things, who seek your son, who begin to actively building, actively building that desire through pursuing you and trusting your spirit to work in us to will and to do your good pleasure. Who give thanks that you do that, that you save us from the penalty of sin and you've saved us from the power of sin and, and you will eventually one day Bring us home out of the presence of sin. Cause us to be people who long for that and who are shrewd stewards as a result. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.